Welcome to Volume 3 of Jeeves in the Morning. Chapter 6 So you and Boko are planning to leap in among the orange blossoms, I said. I had the news from Stilton yesterday and was much stirred. I hope you approve. Thoroughly. Nice work in my opinion. I think you're both onto a good thing and would be well advised to push along with the utmost energy. I've always considered you an extremely sound young potato. She thanked me for these kind words, and I assured her that the tribute was well deserved. As for Boko, I proceeded, one of the best, of course. I could tell you things about Boko which would drive it well into your nut that you have picked a winner. You don't have to. Her voice was soft and tender, like that of a hen crooning over its egg. It was easy to see that as far as she was concerned, Cupid's dart had done its stuff. I gave the wheel a twiddle to avoid a casual dog, and went into my questionnaire. I always like to know all the facts on these occasions. When did you arrange this match? About a week ago. But you felt it coming on before that, I take it? Oh yes, directly when we met. When was that? At the end of May. It was love at first sight, was it? It was. On his side also? On his side also. Well, I could readily understand Boko falling in love at first sight with Nobby. Of course, for she is a girl liberally endowed with oomph. But how she could have fallen in love at first sight with Boko beats me. The first sight of Boko reveals to the beholder an object with a face like an intellectual parrot. Furthermore, as is the case with so many of the young literati, he dresses like a tramp cyclist affecting turtleneck sweaters and grey flannel bags with a patch on the knee and conveying a sort of general suggestion of having been left out in the rain overnight in an ash can. The only occasion on which I have ever seen Jeeves really rattled was when he met Boko for the first time. He winced visibly and tottered off to the kitchen, no doubt to put himself together with cooking sherry. I mentioned this to Nobby and she said she knew what I meant. You would think that he was the sort of man who would have to grow on a girl, gradually as it were, wouldn't you? But no, there was one startled moment when I wondered if I was seeing things, and then, bang, like a thunderbolt. As quick as that, eh? Yes. And his reactions were similar? Yes. Well, here's something I don't understand. You say you met in May, and we're now in July. Why did he take such a dickens of a time wooing you? He didn't exactly woo me. How do you mean not exactly? A man either woos or he does not woo. There's no middle course. There are reasons why he couldn't let himself go. You speak in riddles, young Nobby. Still, so long as he's got round to it eventually. And when are the bells going to ring out in the little village church? I don't know if they ever will. Eh? Uncle Percy doesn't seem to think so. What do you mean? He disapproves of the match. What? I was astounded. It seemed to me for an instant that she must be pulling the Worcester leg. Then, scrutinizing her closely, I noted that the lips were tight and the brow clouded. This young Hopwood is a blue-eyed little half-portion with, normally, an animated dial. The dial to which I refer was now contorted with anguish, as if she had just swallowed a bad oyster. You don't mean that. I do. Egad, I said, for this was serious. Nobby, you see, was peculiarly situated. As often happens, I believe, when girl A becomes the ward of bloke B, 
A clause has been inserted in the contract to the effect that there must be no rot about her marrying without the big chief's consent till she was 21 or 41 or something. So if Uncle Percy really had an anti-boco complex, he was in a position to bung a spanner into the works with no uncertain hand. I couldn't get it. But why? The man must be cuckoo. Boko is one of our most eligible young bachelors. He makes pots of money with his pen. You see his stuff everywhere. That play he had on last year was a substantial hit. And they were saying at the drones the other day that he's had an offer to go to Hollywood. Has he? Yes. Well then? Oh, I know all that. But what you're overlooking is the fact that Uncle Percy is the sort of man who is suspicious of writers. He doesn't believe in their solvency. He's been in business all his life and he can't imagine anybody having any real money except a businessman. But he must know Boko's dash at near being a celebrity. He's had his photo in the Telegraph. Yes, but Uncle Percy has the idea that an author's success is here today and gone tomorrow. Bogo may be doing all right now, but he feels that his earning capacity may go foot at any moment. I suppose he pictures himself having to draw him out of the breadline a year or two from now and support him and me and a half dozen little Bogos for the rest of our lives. And then, of course, he was prejudiced against the poor darling from the start. Because of those trousers, eh? Well, that may have helped, perhaps. The man's an ass. Boko's a writer. He must know that writers are allowed a wide latitude. Besides, though I wouldn't care to have Jeeves hear me say so, trousers aren't everything. The real reason was that he thought Boko was a butterfly. I couldn't follow her. She had me fogged. Anything less like a butterfly than good old Boko I've never set eyes on. A butterfly? Yes, flitting from flower to flower and sipping. And he doesn't like butterflies. Not when they flit and sip. What on earth has put the extraordinary idea into his head that Boko's a flitting sipper? Well, you see, when he arrived at Steeple Bumpley, he was engaged to Florence. What? It was she who made him settle there. That was what I meant when I said he couldn't woo me, as you call it, with any real abandon at first. Being engaged to Florence sort of hampered him. I was amazed. I nearly ran over a hen in my emotion. Engaged to Florence? He never told me. You haven't seen him for quite some time. No, that's true. Well, I'll be dashed. Did you know that I was once engaged to Florence? Of course. And now Stilton is? Yes. How absolutely extraordinary. It's like one of those great race movements you read about. I suppose it's her profile that does it. She has a lovely profile. Seen from the left? Seen from the right, too, Bertie. Well, yes, in a measure, seen from the right, too, but would that account for it? I mean, in these busy days, you can't spend your whole time dodging round a girl, trying to see her sideways. I still maintain this tendency on the part of the populace to get engaged to Florence as inexplicable. And that made Uncle Percy a bit frosty to Boko. Glacial. I see. One understands his point of view, of course. He frowns on this in-and-out running. Florence yesterday, you today. I suppose he thinks you are just another of the flowers that Boko is flitting in on for sipping purposes. I suppose so. And in addition, he doubts his earning capacity. Yes.
I pondered. If Uncle Percy really thought that Boko was a butterfly that might go broke at any moment, Love's Young Dream had unquestionably stubbed its toe. I meant an oofy butterfly is bad enough, but it can at least pay the rent. I could well imagine a man of conservative views recoiling from one which might come asking for handouts for the rest of its life. A thought occurred to me. With that Worcester knack of looking on the bright side, I saw that it was not all yet lost. How old do you have to be before you can marry without Uncle Percy's KO? Twenty-one. How do you now? Twenty. Well, there you are, then. I knew that if we looked close enough, we should find that the sun was still shining. You've only got to wait another year, and there you are. Yes, but Boko leaves for Hollywood next month. I don't know how you feel about this dream man of mine, but to me, and I have studied his character with loving care, he doesn't seem the sort of person to be allowed to go to Hollywood without a wife at his side to distract his attention from the local fauna. Her outlook shocked me, causing me to put a bit of austere topspin on my next crack. There can be no love where there is no perfect trust. Who told you that? Jeeves, I think. Sounds like one of his things. Well, Jeeves is wrong. That jolly well can be love without perfect trust, and don't you forget it. I love Boko, distractedly, but at the thought of him going to Hollywood without me, I come over all faint. He wouldn't mean to let me down. I don't suppose he would even know he was doing it. But one morning, I should get an apologetic cable saying that he couldn't quite explain how it had happened, but that he had inadvertently gotten married last night, and had I anything to suggest. It's his sweet, impulsive nature. He can't say no. I believe that's how he became engaged to Florence. I frowned meditatively. Now that she had outlined the position of affairs, I could see that the situation was a tricky one. Well, then, what's the procedure? I don't know. I frowned another meditative one. Well, something must be done. But what? I had an idea. It's often like that with the Worcesters. They appear baffled and then suddenly, bingo, an inspiration. Leave this to me, I said. What had crossed my mind was the thought that, by establishing myself at Wee Nook on his behalf, I was doing Uncle Percy a dashed good turn. So dashed that if he had a spark of gratitude in his composition, he ought to be all over me. I could picture him clasping my hands and saying that thanks to me that merger had come off, and was there any reward I cared to ask for? For he could deny me nothing. What you need here, I said, is the suave intervention of a polished man of the world, a silver-tongued orator who will draw Uncle Percy aside and plead your cause, softening his heart and making him take the big, broad view. I'll attend to it. You, Bertie? In person, within the next day or two. Oh, Bertie! It'll be a pleasure to put in a word for you. I anticipate notable results. I shall probably play on the old crumb as on a stringed instrument. She registered girlish joy. Oh, Bertie, you're a lamb! Maybe you're right. A touch of a lamb, perhaps. It's a wonderful idea. You see, you've known Boko for so long. Virtually from the egg. You'll be able to think of all sorts of things to say about him. Did he ever save your life when you were a boy? Not that I can remember. You should say that he did. I doubt it would go well. Uncle Percy was none too keen on me at that epoch. It would be more likely to strike a chord if I told him that Boko had repeatedly tried to assassinate me when I was a boy. 
However, leave it to me. I'll find the words. All this while, of course, the two-seater had been humming along towards Steeple Bumpley with the needle in the 60s. And at this point, Nobby notified me that we were approaching our destination. Those chimneys through the trees are the hall. You can see the little lane on the left. You go down it and you come to Boko's place. Yours is about a half mile beyond that, up another sort of side turning. You will really plead my case with Uncle Percy? Like Billio. You won't weaken. Not a chance. Of course, it's just possible you may not have to. You see, I thought that if Bogo and Uncle Percy could really get together, Uncle Percy could learn to love him. So though it wasn't easy, I arranged that Bogo should give him lunch today. I do hope everything has gone all right. A lot depends on how Bogo behaved. I mean, up till now, whenever they met, he's always been so stiff in his manner. I begged him with tears in my eyes to let himself go and be bright and genial, and he promised he would try, so I'm hoping for the best. Me too, I said, and if I remember correctly, patted her little hand. I then drove to the hall and decanted her at its gates, assuring her that even if Boko had failed to fascinate at midday meal, I would see to it that everything came out all right. With a final cheery wave of the hand, I backed the car out and headed for the lane of which she had spoken. All this talking had, of course, left me with a well-defined thirst, and it seemed to me, despite a householder's natural desire to take possession as soon as possible, that my first move had better be to stop off at Boko's and touch him for the needful. I assumed that the whitewashed cottage, standing on the riverbank, must be the Bokeries, for Nobby had indicated I had to pass it on my way to the wee nook. I hove to alongside accordingly, and noting that one of the windows at the side was opened, I approached it and whistled. A hoarse shout from within, and a small china ornament whizzing past my head, informed me that my old friend was indeed at home. Chapter 7 The passing of the china ornament, which had come within an ace of chopping me on the napper, drew from my lips a sharp, Oi! As if in answer to the cry, Boko now appeared at the window. His hair was disordered and his face flushed, presumably with literary composition. In appearance, as I have indicated, this man of letters is a cross between a comedy juggler and a parrot that has been dragged through a hedge backwards, and you never catch him at his nattiest in the workshop. I took it that I had interrupted him at a difficult point in a chapter. He had been glaring at me through horn-rimmed spectacles, but now, as he perceived who it was that stood without, the flame faded behind the lenses to be replaced by a look of astonishment. Good Lord, Birdie, is that you? I assured him that such was the case, and he apologised for having bunged china ornaments at me. Why did you imitate the note of the lesser screech owl? He said rebukingly. I thought you were young Edwin. He comes sneaking round here, trying to do me acts of kindness, and that is always how he announces his presence. I am never without a certain amount of ammunition handy at my desk. Where on earth did you spring from? The Metropolis. Just arrived. Well, you might have had the sense to send a wire. I'd have killed the fatted calf for you. I saw he was under a misapprehension. I haven't come to stay with you. I'm hanging out at a cottage, which they tell me is a little farther down the road. Wee Nook? That's right. Have you taken Wee Nook? Yes. What suddenly made you decide to do that? 
I had foreseen that some explanation of my presence might be required, and was ready with a story. My lips being sealed, of course, on the real reason which had brought me to Steeple Bumpley. It was necessary to dissemble. Cheese thought that he might like to do a bit of fishing, and, I added, making the thing more plausible, they tell me a fancy-dressed dance is breaking out in these parts tomorrow night. Well, you'll know me when I hear rumours of these entertainments. The war horse and the bugle. And now, I said, licking the lips, how about a cooling drink? The journey has left me a little parched. I climbed through the window and sank into a chair, while he was off to fetch the ingredients. Presently he returned with a jingling tray, and after we had done a bit of stag at evening, and exchanged some desultory comments about this and that, I did the civil thing by congratulating him on his engagement. I was saying to Nobby, whom I drove down here in my car, how extraordinary it was that any girl should have fallen in love with you at first sight. I wouldn't have thought it could have been done. It came as quite a surprise to me too. You could have knocked me down with a feather. I don't wonder. Still, all sorts of unlikely people do seem to excite the spark of passion. Look at my Aunt Agatha. Oh, yeah. And Stilton. You know about Stilton? I ran into him in a jeweler's, buying the ring, and he told me his fearful predicament. Sooner him than me. Just how I feel. Nobby thinks it's Florence's profile that does it. Quite possibly. There was silence, broken only by the musical sound of us having another go at the elixir. Then he heaved a sigh and said that life was rummy, to which I assented that in many respects it was very rummy. Take my case, he said. Did Nobby tell you what my position is? About Uncle Percy gumming the works, you mean? Oh, rather. Nice box of fruit, eh, what? So it struck me, decidedly. The heart bled. Fancy having to get anyone's consent to your getting married in this enlightened age. The thing's an anachronism. Why, you can't use it as a motive for a story, even in a women's magazine nowadays. Doesn't your Aunt Dahlia run some sort of women's rag? Milady's Boudoir. Sixpence Weekly. I once contributed an article to it on what the well-dressed man is wearing. Well, I never read Milady's Boudoir, but I have no doubt it is the lowest dregs of the publishing world. Yet, if I were to submit a story to your aunt about a girl who couldn't marry a fellow without some blasted head of the family's consent, she would hoot at it. That is to say, I'm not allowed to turn an honest petty by using this complication in my work, but it's jolly well allowed to come barging in and ruining my life, pretty state of things. What happens if you go ahead regardless? I believe I get jugged. Or is that only when you marry a ward in the Chancery without the Lord Chancellor hoisting the old right flag? You have me there. We could ask Jeeves. Yes, Jeeves would know. You brought him? He's following with the heavy luggage. How is he these days? Fine. Brain all right? Colossal. Then he may be able to think of some way out of this mess. We shan't need Jeeves. I'm handling the whole thing myself. I'm going to get hold of Uncle Percy and plead your cause. You? Oddly enough, that's what Nobby said, in the same surprised tone. But I thought the man scared you stiff. He does. But I've been able to do him a good turn. And my drag with him is now substantial. Well, that's fine then, he said, brightening. Snap into it, Bertie. But, he added, coming unbrightened again. You've got a tough job. Oh, I don't know. I do, after what happened at lunch today. 
I was conscious of a sudden quick concern. Your lunch with Uncle Percy? That's the one. Didn't it go well? Not too well. Nobby was anticipating but bring home the bacon. Oh, God bless her optimistic little soul. I gave him one of my keen looks. There was a sombre expression on his map. The nose was wriggling in an overwrought way. It's easy to perceive that pain and anguish racked the brow. Tell me all, I said. He unshipped with a heavy sigh. You know, Bertie, the whole idea was a mistake from the start. She should have never brought us together. And if she had to bring us together, she ought not have told me to be bright and genial. You know about her wanting me to be bright and genial. Yes, she said you were inclined to be a bit stiff in your manner with Uncle Percy. I'm always stiff in my manner with elderly gentlemen who snort like foghorns when I appear and glare at me as if I was somebody from Moscow distributing red propaganda. It's a sensitive, highly strung artist in me. Old hardened arteries does not like me. So Nobby said, she thinks it's because he regards you as a butterfly. My personal view is that it's those grey flannel bags of yours. What's wrong with them? The patch on the knee, principally. It creates a bad impression. Haven't you got another pair? Who do you think I am? Beau Brummel? I forbore to pursue the subject. Well, go on. Where was I? You were saying you made a bloomer in trying to be bright and genial. Oh, yes, that's right, I did. And this is how it came about. You see, the first thing a man has to ask himself when he's told to be bright and genial is how bright, how genial. Shall he be, that is to say, just a medium ray of sunshine, or shall he go all out and shoot the works? I thought it over and decided to bar nothing and be absolutely rollicking. And that, I see now, is where I went wrong. He paused and remained for a space in thought. I could see that some painful memory was engaging his attention. I wonder, Bertie, he said, coming to the surface at length, if you were present one day at the drones when Freddy Widgeon sprang those joke goods on the lunches there. Joke goods? The things you see advertised in toy shop catalogues as handy for breaking the ice and setting the table in a roar. You know, the plate lifter, the triple glass, the surprise salt shaker. Oh, those! I laughed heartily. I remember the occasion well. Cat's meat potter Pierbright was suffering from a hangover at the moment, and I shall not readily forget his emotion when he picked up his roll and it squeaked, and a rubber mouse ran out from it. Strong men had to rally round with brandy. And then I stopped laughing heartily. The frightful significance of his words hit me, and I started as if somebody had jabbed a red-hot skewer through the epidermis. You aren't telling me you worked those gags on Uncle Percy? Yes, Bertie. That is what I did. Golly! That about covers it. I groaned a hollow one. The heart had sunk. One has, of course, to make allowances for writers, all of them being more or less loony. Look at Shakespeare, for example. Very unbalanced. Used to go about stealing ducks. Nonetheless, I couldn't help feeling that in springing joke goods on the guardian of the girl he loved... Boko had carried an author's natural goofiness too far. Even Shakespeare might have hesitated to go to such lengths. Why? I suppose the idea at the back of my mind was I ought to show him my human side. Did he take it big? Oh, pretty big. He didn't like it? No. I can answer that question without reservation. He did not like it. Has he forbidden you the house? 
You don't have to forbid people houses after looking at them, as he looked at me over the surprise salt shaker. The language of the eyes is enough. Do you know the surprise salt shaker? You joggle it, and out comes a spider. The impression I received was that he was allergic to spiders. Hi, Rose. I'd had enough. I'll be pushing along, I said rather faintly. What's your hurry? I ought to be getting to Wee Nook. Jeeves will be arriving there at any moment with the luggage, and I shall have to get us settled in. I'll see. I will come with you, only I'm in the act of composing a well-expressed letter of apology to my Lord Warpleston. I'd better finish it, though it may not be needed, if all you say about being in a position to plead with him is true. Plead well, Bertie. Pitch is strong. Let the golden phrases come rolling out like honey. For as I say, I don't think you've got an easy job on your hands. Eloquence beyond the ordinary will be required. And by the way, not a word to Nobby about lunch. The facts will have to be broken to it gently, and by degrees if at all. My mood as I set a course for a wee nook was, as you may well suppose, a good deal less effervescent than it had been. The idea of pleading with Uncle Percy had lost practically all its fascination. There rose before me a vision of this relative by marriage, as he would probably appear directly. I mentioned Boko's name. The eyes glaring, the moustache bristling, and the tout ensemble presenting a strong resemblance to a short-tempered tiger of the jungle which has just seen its peasant shin up a tree. And while it would be going too far, perhaps, to say that Bertram Worcester shuddered, a certain coolness of the feet unquestionably existed. I was trying to hold the thought that once that merger had gone through, joy would most likely reign so supreme that the old bounder would look even on Boko with the eye of kindliness, when there came to me the ting of a bicycle bell, and a voice called my name, worstering with such vehemence that I immediately braked the car and glanced round. The sight I saw smote me like a blow. Heaving alongside was Stilton Cheesewright, and on his face, as he alighted from his bicycle and confronted me, there was about as unpleasant a look as has ever caught me in the eyeball. It was a look pregnant with amazement and hostility. A gore-blimey, what's-this-blider-doing-here look. The sort of look, in fine, which the heroine of pantomime gives the demon king when he comes popping up out of the trap at her elbow. And I could follow what was passing in his mind as clearly as if it had been broadcast on a nationwide hookup. All along I had been far from comfortable when speculating as to what this Othello's reaction would be on discovering me in the neighbourhood. The way in which he had received the information that I was an old acquaintance of Florence's had shown that his thoughts had been given a morbid turn, causing him to view Bertram with suspicion, and I had been afraid that he was going to place an unfortunate construction on my sudden arrival in her vicinity. It was almost inevitable, I mean, that the thing would smack, in his view, far too strongly of young Lokenvar coming out of the West, and of course, my lips being sealed, I couldn't explain. A delicate and embarrassing situation. And yet, amazing though you will find the statement, what was causing me to goggle at him with saucer eyes was not this look that told me that my fears had been well-founded, but the fact that the face attached to it was topped by a policeman's helmet. The burly frame, moreover, was clad in a policeman's uniform, and on the feet one noted the regulation official boots or beetle crushers, which go to complete the panoply of the awful majesty of the law. In a word, 
Stilton Cheese Ride had suddenly turned into a country copper, and I could make nothing of it. Chapter 8 I stared at the man. Stop my vitals, Stilton, I cried in uncontrollable astonishment. Why the fancy dress? He too had a question. What the hell are you doing here, you blood-stained Worcester? I held up a hand. This was no time for side issues. Why are you got up like a policeman? I am a policeman. A policeman? Yes. When you say policeman, I queried, groping, do you mean policeman? Yes. You're a policeman? Yes, blast you, are you deaf? I'm a policeman. I grasped it now, he was a policeman. And my mind flashing back to yesterday's encounter in the jewellery bin, I realised what had made his manner furtive and evasive when I asked him what he did at Steeple Bumpley. He had shrunk from revealing the truth, fearing lest I might be funny at his expense. As indeed I would have been extraordinarily funny. Even now, though the gravity of the situation forbade their utterance, I was thinking of at least three priceless cracks I could make. What about it? Why shouldn't I be a policeman? Oh, rather! Half the men you know go into the police nowadays. I nodded. This was undoubtedly true. Since they started their college at Hendon, the force has become congested with one's old buddies. I remember balmy Father Ray Phipps describing to me with gestures his emotions on being pinched in Leicester Square one boat race night by his younger brother George. And much the same thing happened to Freddie Widgeon at Hurst Park in connection with his cousin Cyril. Yes, I said, spotting a flaw, but in London. Not necessarily. With the idea of getting into Scotland Yard and rising to great heights in their profession. That's what I'm going to do. Get into Scotland Yard? Yes. And rise to great heights? Yes. Well, I shall watch your future progress with considerable interest, I said. When I spoke dubiously, at Eton, Stilton had been captain of the boats, and he had always rowed assiduously for Oxford. His entire formative years, therefore, you might say, had been spent in dipping an oar into the water, giving it a shove and hauling it back out again. Only a pretty dumb brick would fritter away his golden youth doing that sort of thing, which in addition to being silly is also deuced of a sweat. And Stilton Cheesewright was a pretty dumb brick, a fine figure of a young fellow as far northward as the neck, but above that solid concrete. I could not see him as a member of the Big Four. Far more likely he'd end up as one of those Scotland Yard bunglers who used to, if you remember, always were getting into Sherlock Holmes's hair. However, I didn't say so. As a matter of fact, I didn't say anything, for I was far too busy pondering on this new and unforeseen development. I was profoundly thankful that Jeeves had voted against my giving Florence a birthday present. Such a gift, if Stilton heard of it, would have led to his tearing me limb from limb, or at best summoning me for failing to abate a smoky chimney. You can't be too careful how you stir up policemen. I had succeeded in sidetracking his question for a space, but I knew that the respite would be merely temporary. They train these cops to stick to the point. I was not surprised, therefore, when he repeated it. I'm not saying I didn't wish he hadn't. All I'm saying is that I wasn't surprised. Well, to blazes with all that, you haven't told me what you're doing in Steeple Bumpley. I temporized. Oh, just making a passing sojourn, I said nonchalantly. The old careless Bertram Worcester. You mean you come to stay? 
for a while. Somewhere over yonder in my little nest. I hope you will frequently drop in when off duty. And what made you suddenly decide to come taking little nests in these parts? I went into my routine. Jeeves wanted to do a bit of fishing. Oh? Yes, he tells me it's admirable here. You find the hook and the fish do the rest. For quite a while he'd been staring at me in an unpleasant, boiled sort of way. The brows drawn, the eyes bulging in their sockets. The austerity of his gaze now became intensified. Except for the fact that he hadn't taken out a notebook and a stub of pencil, he might have been questioning some rat of the underworld as to where he had been on the night of June the 25th. I see. That is your statement, is it? Jeeves wanted to do a bit of fishing. That's right. Oh, well, I'll tell you what you wanted to do, young blasted Worcester. A bit of snake in the grassing. I affected not to have grabbed the gist, though in reality I had gotten it nicely. Snake in the whatting? Grassing. I don't follow you. I'll make it clearer then. You've come here to sneak round Florence. My dear chap! He ground a tooth or two. It was plain that he was in a dangerous mood. I may as well tell you, he resumed, that I was not at all satisfied with your evidence, with what you said when I saw you yesterday. You stated that you had known Florence. Just one moment, Stilton. Sorry to interrupt, but do we bandy a woman's name? Yes, we do, and Ruddy well keep on bandying it. Oh, right-ho. Just wanted to know. You stated that you had known Florence only slightly. Pretty well was the exact expression you used, and it seemed to me that your manner was suspicious. So when I got back, I saw her and questioned her about you. She confessed that you and she had once been engaged. I moistened the lips with the tip of the tongue. I am never at my best tete-a-tete with the constabulary. They always seem somehow to quell my manly spirit. It may be the helmet that does it, or possibly the boots. And of course, when one of the gendarmerie is accusing you of trying to pinch his girl, the embarrassment deepens. At the moment of going to press, with Stilton's eyes boring holes through me, I had begun to feel like Eugene Aram just before they put the gyves to his wrists. I don't know if you remember the passage. Tee-tum, 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 tee-mist. I think it's mist. And Eugene Aram walked between with gyves upon his wrist. I cleared my throat and endeavoured to speak with a winning frankness. Well, yes, that's right. It all comes back to me. We were, weren't we? Long ago. Not so long ago. Well, it seems like long ago. Oh? Yes! Is that so? Positively. The whole thing's over, eh? Definitely. Nothing between you now? Not a thing! Then how do you account for the fact that she gives you a copy of her novel and writes to Bertie with love from Florence in it? I tottered. And at the same time, I'm bound to confess, I found myself feeling a new respect for Stilton. At first, if you recollect, when he had spoken of rising to great heights at Scotland Yard, I had thought lightly of his chances. It seemed to me now that he must have the markings of a very hot detective indeed. 
You had the book with you when you came into that jeweler's shop. You left it on the counter. I looked inside. I revised my views about his sleuthing powers. Not so very hot after all. Sherlock Holmes, if you remember, always said that it was a mistake for a detective to explain his methods. Well? I laughed lightly. At least I tried to. As a matter of fact, the thing came out more like a death rattle. Oh, that was rather amusing! All right, then. Go on. Make me laugh. I was in the bookshop, and she came in... You had an assignation with her in a bookshop? No, no, just an accidental meeting. I see. And you've come down here to arrange another. Good Lord, no! Do you seriously expect me to believe that you aren't trying to steal her from me? Nothing could be further from my thoughts, old man. Don't call me old man. Right ho, if you don't like it. The whole thing, officer, is one of those absurd misunderstandings. As I was starting to tell you, I was in this bookshop. Here he interrupted me, damning the bookshop with a good deal of heartiness. I'm not interested in the bookshop. The point is that you have come down here to make a snake in the grass of yourself, and I'm not going to have it. I have just one thing to say to you, Worcester. Get out. But... Push off. Remove your beastly presence. Pop back to your London residence and stay there and do it quick. But I can't! What do you mean? Well, as I said before, my lips are sealed. But the Worcesters are swift thinkers. Old Boko, I explained. I'm acting for him in a rather delicate matter. As you possibly may know, my Uncle Percy is endeavouring to put the bee on his union with Nobby. I've promised the young couple that I will plead for them. This will, of course, involve my remaining in statue. What is it? Pa. No, not pa. Quo. That's the word I'm trying to think of. You, you can't plead with an uncle by marriage unless you're in statue quo. It seemed to me a pretty good and reasonable explanation. And I was distressed accordingly to observe that he was sneering unpleasantly. I don't believe a word of it. You plead? What's the good of you pleading? As if anything you could have to say would have any weight with anybody. I repeat, clear out. Otherwise... He didn't mention what would happen otherwise, but the menacing way in which he hopped on his bicycle and pedalled off spoke louder than words. I don't think I've ever seen anyone pedalled with more sinister touch to the ankle work. I was still looking after him, feeling a little weak, when from the opposite, or wee-nook direction, there came the ting of another bell, and swivelling around I perceived Florence approaching. As perfect an instance of one damn thing after another as I have ever experienced. In sharp contradistinction to those of Stilton, her eyes were shining with a welcoming light. She hopped off as she reached the car and flashed a bright smile at me. Oh, here you are, Bertie. I have just been putting a few flowers in wee nook for you. I thanked her, but with sinking heart. I hadn't liked that smile, and I didn't like the idea of her sweating about strewing flowers in my path. The note struck seemed to me altogether too matey. Then I reminded myself that if she was betrothed to Stilton, 
There could be no real cause for alarm. After all, her father had married my aunt, which made us sort of cousins, and there was nothing necessarily sinister in a bit of cousinly bustling about. Blood, I mean to say, when you come right down to it, being thicker than water. Frightfully decent of you, I said. I've just been having a chat with Stilton. Stilton? You're affianced. Oh, Darcy, why do you call him Stilton? A boyish nickname. We were at school together. Oh, then perhaps you could tell me if he was always such a perfect imbecile as he is today. Oh my, I didn't like this. It didn't seem the language of love. In what sense do you mean imbecile? I use it as the only possible description of a man with a wealthy uncle willing and anxious to do everything for him deliberately elects to become a common constable. Why did he, I asked, become a common constable, I mean? He says that every man ought to stand on his own feet and earn a living. Conscientious what? Rubbish. You don't think it does him credit? No, I don't. I think he's a perfect idiot. There was a pause. It was plain that his behaviour rankled, and it seemed to me what was required here was a strong boost for the young copper. For I need scarcely say that, now that I was face to face again with this girl, all thought of carrying on with the promotion of that Save Stilton Cheese Ride campaign was farther from my mind than ever. I should have thought you would have been rather bucked about it all, as giving evidence of soul, I mean. Soul? Yes, it shows he's got a great soul. I should be extremely surprised to find that he has any soul above those great clod-hopping boots he wears. He is just pig-headed. I have reasoned with him over and over again. His uncle wants him to stand for Parliament and is prepared to pay all his expenses and to finance him generously for the rest of his life. But no, he just looks mulish and talks about earning his living. I am sick and tired of the whole thing, and I really don't know what I shall do about it. Well, goodbye, Bertie. I must be getting along. She concluded this abruptly, as if she found the subject too painful to dwell on, and was off. Just at the very moment when I had remembered that it was her birthday and that I had a brooch in my pocket to deliver to her from Aunt Agatha. I could have called her back, I suppose, but somehow didn't feel in the mood. Her words had left me shaking in every limb. The revelation of the flimsiness of the foundations on which the Florence Stilton romance appeared to be founded had appalled me, and I had to remain in statu quo and smoke a couple of cigarettes before I felt strong enough to resume my journey. Then, feeling a little better and trying to tell myself that this was just a passing tiff and that matters would speedily adjust themselves, I pushed on and in another couple of minutes was coming to anchor a bath, wee nook. <laughs>